Brennan, where did you see yourself in Mr. Brennan? It was about dark two weeks ago. The day before, reports were carried in the paper going to the And so it's the front four children that for about five seconds. The front four of the office was over. Hello and welcome to The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. So last week we were learning about one of the most well-known and investigated cases of a UFO sighting during the 1960s. Project Blue Book investigated it, and it has been mentioned dozens of times on everything from NBC's 1970s-era Project UFO which was based on real Blue Book files, to Unsolved Mysteries and dozens of podcasts. When we left, a 54-year-old astronomer and professor from Northwestern University had just arrived on the scene. But this was no average scholar. Indeed, this may be the most famous person to ever investigate the phenomenon. Ever heard of J. Allen Hynek? If you haven't, you should probably start brushing up on his story now. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you're happy, healthy, and well wherever you are in the world. I'm glad to see that ridiculously horrific winter storm has passed through the U.S. now, and it looks like everyone is starting to thaw out. So stay safe, folks. Uh, I know that that's never easy. Again, I've done my share of living in the ice and snow in my life. So on this episode of The Paranormal Sun, we're going to have the second part of the fascinating 1964 Lonnie Zamora case, and I'm going to pick it up where... We left off with Dr. Hynek touching down in Socorro. But first, I just want to go through a few very brief shout-outs. First and foremost, to you, the listeners, thank you so much. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I couldn't do what I do without your support. I've got so much support around the world, the U.S., the U.K., India, France, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, and many, many more. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, supporting, and reaching out and getting in touch with me on social media and elsewhere. Now, if you do want to follow me on social media or you want to reach out and get in touch with me, the easiest way is just to go to Instagram and look for me there, the paranormal sun, with an underscore between each word, so the underscore paranormal underscore sun. And if you go there and you go into my bio there, there's a link that will take you to a landing page that has got just about everywhere that the Paranormal Sun is. Everything from the Facebook group, Instagram, you name it. Uh, Patreon, if you want to support the program there. There's a PayPal link. There's the website. There's all kinds of things there. And then also you can go over to theparanormalsun.com. That's my website, and you can go over there and find out a lot of other things and I haven't been the best at keeping that updated lately. I owe everyone a February consumption list. So again, for those of you who may be new to the show, it's just basically JT's consumption. So it's what I've been digesting, enjoying over the last month, whether it's podcasts or reading or what I've been watching on TV. So uh, I'll have that out in the next few days, hopefully. There have been a few issues with people accessing older episodes of the program and some of the newer ones. And again, I would really put it down to those teething pains of moving podcast providers. But if you are having issues, just drop me a line, drop me a note, and I'll do my best to send you somewhere where it's working. I have sent a query into 
the new provider just to say, hey, what's going on? Is there anything I can do to help? Because again, folks, bearing in mind and reminding that I stuffed up part of this myself in the move and just basically saying to them, is there anything I can do to help out and make sure that we get this sorted out sooner rather than later? Now, one of the things that I did mention in that latest uh, CIA episode number eight, which you may not have heard because, again, as I said, some people have told me they've had issues accessing that episode. On that episode, I announced a new chapter president, and that chapter president is Tuaday in India. And again, thanks Tuaday so much for your support, for sending me different things. I read a few articles in there for you as well, which were based in India. So when that comes online, make sure that you go back and have a listen. And I have another chapter president to nominate tonight. And that is Mark from the Zen Sandwich podcast. And Mark is based in Japan. Now, Mark's got a great podcast in and of itself, and I really enjoy it. And Mark has been a massive supporter of me and the program and everything I do. He's always got positive words to say and always has some good positive reinforcement, which I really appreciate. So, Mark, I am very thankful to welcome you into the fold as the chapter president and field correspondent for Japan. Now, if you yourself out there are wondering, hey, JT, I, I want to be a field correspondent. I want to be a I want to be a chapter president for my city or state or country. Well, by all means, folks, the, the bottom line is that this is just an honor that I like to bestow upon people who are supportive and help me out and send me articles and like and comment on my social media feeds. So if that's something that interests you, hey, hit me up, you know, and uh, show the love. Just show the love and we'll go from there. Now, there is one other shout out that I just wanted to give really quickly. I sat down the other evening. Um, my my partner, uh, Vi, my lovely wife, she loves to say that I'm a bit too chatty oftentimes. And I sat down with a gentleman for a conversation on another podcast. He asked me to come on and do an episode with him. And so we sat down, and he said, oh, it'll be about an hour. And sure enough, I kept uh, I kept poor Tanner on for over three hours over at the Cozy Cryptid podcast. But we had a great talk, and it was one of my favorite types of interviews, which is just kind of where does the road lead us. So we talked about everything from politics to Bigfoot to pyramids to UFOs, of course, to the COVID, to the COVID, the current COVID stuff going on, and everything in between, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, Tanner's told me he really enjoyed it as well. Hopefully, I didn't put him to sleep. The the poor guy, you know, he got off of work, he was working his shift, he came home, he hopped on, and then I gave him uh, three hours of uh, conversation. But like I said, I really enjoyed it. And if that's something you want to check out, I'll put a link in this show notes so you can go over there and check it out. I am trying to do a better job of keeping track of where I go, the shows that I do uh, interviews on, or where I spend some time with the hosts, so that if there is anything you want to know about, you can go over there and check those out. I'm thinking about, I need to carve out a bit of a niche on the website somewhere. I've just got to find a place to put that and a few other things, like the chapter presidents list. It's just a matter of doing it, folks, and thinking about where am I going to put it without making it look um, out of place and silly. 
So again, like I say, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everyone out there in the listening audience, and thank you to everyone who sends me information or asks me questions. Um, oftentimes, because of the time difference, I might wake up and I'll have a message sent to me at 2 or 3 a.m. here, but I'll wake up in the morning, and it's actually really cool because, you know, I'll wake up and there's a good conversation there. It's not just the same old, uh, hey, how are you doing? How's the weather there? Um, I appreciate that, and I appreciate anyone who takes the time to talk to me, but I always like having some of these cool links sent to me and news articles and that, so when I get up and the juices get flowing, I've got something to jump straight into, so yeah, thank you for that, like I say, everyone who does that. So I've just got one last quick announcement before we move into the news of the damned, and that is next week's program. So obviously this is the second part of the Lonnie Zamora episode. Next week... We are going to be visiting the state of Pennsylvania. And the state of Pennsylvania in the U.S., as you can imagine, having been settled for a very long time by Europeans and immigrants from Europe, but as well, obviously, before that, by the Native American tribes, has got a very long and rich history of all these things that we cover and enjoy on the show. So you're going to get a real good mix on there. A lot of haunted locations, cryptids, all kinds of strange and unexplained things there in Pennsylvania. And that's without even going into some of the bigger ones that I want to reserve for later full episodes. So that'll be next week, and it'll be a two-parter. And the second week of the Pennsylvania episode, I've got a special surprise for you all. Uh, we're going to have some insider knowledge, and we're going to have something different for you. So I want you to make sure that you stay tuned for that. So, like I say, so that'll be next week. That will be the week of March 3rd and March 10th for that two-part episode. So make sure that you stay tuned in for that. You won't want to miss it. I've got some really good things coming there and some excellent surprises in store. So now we are going to move into the news of the damned. For those of you who may be new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Charles Fort was one of the founding fathers of these topics and this genre that I cover over on the Paranormal Sun. Charles Fort is the man that they named terms like Fortiana and Fortian after. And Charles Fort was one of the first people that started gathering all of these types of experiences people have, from lights in the sky to sea serpents and ghost ships and out-of-place artifacts and disappearing people, all sorts of things like this. And he would gather them from magazines and newspapers all over the world. And then he would collate them and print them with his own theories and commentary in a series of books. Now, at the time, his books weren't very famous. He wasn't very well known, and he didn't make a lot of money from it. But after he passed, and especially as time went on, as is often the case with people like this, he's become one of the biggest people in the field. And like I say, he's basically got the terms 40 and 40 Anna. Those are direct reference to Charles Fort. So Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damn data because it was excluded. And therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, the news segment on the program is always the news of the damned. And we do have some excellent articles for you tonight. The first one here 
is a very interesting one that I saw in my scrolling of Instagram the other day. So I took a screenshot of it so I could go and find the actual article. So the article is from thedrive.com, and they've got like a subpage there that's called The War Zone. And I had a bit of a glance at that earlier, and that looks to be where they cover a lot of things like military and those sorts of things. And this one is titled, Airliner Encountered Unidentified Fast-Moving Cylindrical Object Over New Mexico. The event and the pilot's reaction to it are remarkably similar to one that occurred in the same general area a few years ago. And this article just came out on the 21st of February, and it's by Tyler Rogaway. Now, this really sparked my curiosity because, obviously, the Lonnie Zamora case is in New Mexico, and we visited New Mexico several times already. Okay, so, American Airlines Flight 2292 and Airbus A320 flying between Cincinnati and Phoenix on February 21st, 2021, had a bizarre close encounter with what its crew described as a long cylindrical object that almost looked like a cruise missile. Moving extremely fast over the top of their aircraft as it cruised along at 36,000 feet and 400 knots. The incident occurred over the remote northeast corner of New Mexico, to the west of the tiny town of Des Moines. Steve Douglas, an experienced radar interceptor, or sorry, radio interceptor, and proprietor of Deep Black Horizon, told the war zone that he was recording from his arsenal of scanners when he heard the strange transmission. The war zone has received over an hour of audio that Douglas has provided to us from before and after the strange radio call. We are working to authenticate it from the FAA and get further information and comments from the agency on the event. We have also reached out to American Airlines for any additional details they can provide. At approximately 1.19 Central Standard Time on the Albuquerque Center frequency of 127.850 Hz or 134.750 Hz, recording wasn't frequency stamped, the pilot reported, Do you have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us. I hate to say this, but it looked like a long cylindrical object that almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing, moving really fast right over the top of us. According to Flight 24 and Flight Aware, AAL-2292 was over the northeast corner of New Mexico west of Clayton, New Mexico. No reply was monitored by Albuquerque Center because local Amarillo air traffic walked on top of it. AAL-2292 was near flight level 370, or 37K, at the time of their report, 37,000 feet. No significant military aircraft presence was noted on ADS-B logs. The aircraft flew on to land in Phoenix, Arizona. Steve has provided the radio clip for download. You can listen to it here. The incident is very similar to one that occurred in the same region almost exactly three years ago, which the war zone was the first to report on. During that event, a Learjet and an Airbus both had consecutive close encounters with an unidentified object that flew over the top of them while cruising at around 37,000 feet over eastern Arizona. Later, the highly experienced Learjet pilot, which was flying for military contractor Phoenix Air, described to local news outlets just how strange the encounter was. His description is somewhat similar to the one from another odd encounter we reported on that occurred off of Long Island. The description of a missile-like object also fits with some of the documented encounters U.S. Navy fighter pilots have had with anomalous objects off the eastern seaboard throughout the last decade. 
The War Zone published official reports that we obtained through the Freedom of Information Act as a result of our deeper investigation into seemingly unexplained encounters between U.S. Navy fighter crews and strange objects during that same period of time that mentioned similar descriptions. As to what the pilots aboard the American Airlines Flight 2292 could have actually seen, we cannot really say at this time. Many will point out that New Mexico is home to the sprawling White Sands Missile Range, along with a bevy of other military facilities, installations, and restricted areas. Still, the chances that a missile could have gone off the reservation during a test, or some other standard military explanation, seems unlikely. There are procedures in place for this sort of thing, and pilots would have been alerted to the safety hazard. In addition, the notion that it could be some sort of clandestine aircraft is also highly improbable, as it would have been operating during the day and without communicating with air traffic control over unrestricted airspace. That being said, we need to point out that the Mount Dora military operating area is in that area, but the airline pilots would have been alerted to the airspace being hot and to other potential conflicts. In addition, it isn't a place where a munition like a cruise missile would be let loose. The events over Northern California and Oregon in October of 2017, another case that the war zone broke, shows that there is at least some precedent for unknown aircraft operating in highly trafficked airspace, even up into the flight levels where airliners fly. In that case, F-15s were scrambled to investigate after the object was observed for a long period of time by multiple airliners. Years after our initial investigations into that incident, all of our sources say it remains unexplained, even at the highest levels. We will let you know what we hear back from the FAA and American Airlines. And then they've got an email address to contact them if you've got any information. Now, I don't know if they're just hedging their bets or they're just being careful not to say something that may sound quote-unquote crazy, but folks... This has been going on for as long as airliners have been in the sky, okay? I mean, I know there were multiple instances in the 70s, 80s, uh, before that in the 50s and 60s about UFOs and unidentified objects buzzing airliners. So this is nothing new. Hopefully, um, we don't get too many more of these because the more airliners that we've got up in the sky, the higher chance of there being an accident of some sort. I get that these crafts seem to be so advanced that you would think they've got everything under control. But again, it only takes a human making a mistake to end up having a tragedy and a big loss of life. But again, there there you go. It just goes to show that this is happening all the time, all over the world. Obviously, I covered the Kaikoura Lights events. Uh, there have been multiple other instances like this. I think of the Japan air flight over Alaska in 1986. That's one of the most famous ones, and again and again and again. So I'm sure that I'll be covering more of those in the future. So here's our second article of the evening, and this one was sent to me earlier in the week by Dave, who's the chapter president in Missouri. Dave from the Old 77 podcast, so thanks again, brother. Uh, now, this isn't the exact same one that Dave sent me, but I just Googled it up, and I picked this one from Popular Mechanics because... I don't want you folks to think that I get everything from the Sun, UK, and Coast to Coast AM. So this one is from Popular Mechanics. And this is titled, Scientists Just Change the Rules of What You Can Do While You Sleep. A new experiment shows it's possible to talk to dreaming people and actually hear back from them. And this is from Carolyn Delbert, 
and this is from February the 22nd, so just a couple days ago. Scientists at Northwestern University, now there's a synchronicity for you. Um, I didn't know that until I just read this, but J. Allen Hynek, who's coming up, like I say, he was very famous for hosting his invisible college at Northwestern University. So, yeah, wow. Interesting already. Okay, so scientists at Northwestern University are doing a dream job, literally. They're questioning people who are deep in dream-filled REM sleep. The crazy part? Those dreamers are actually answering basic questions by moving their eyes back and forth. By prompting people to lucid dream and asking questions, these scientists are proving dreams are permeable in both directions. That's big. We've known for a while that dreams can include things prompted by real life, like a monster that turns out to be a stifling pillow, or an alarm clock noise that joins the dream action. But this is one of the first experiments to show that people having dreams can reach out from their dreaming state into real life. Individuals who are asleep and in the midst of a lucid dream, aware of the fact that they are currently dreaming, can perceive questions from an experimenter and provide answers using electrophysical signals, the researchers write in Current Biology. In the study, the subjects exhibited various capabilities during REM sleep, the scientists say including making distinctive eye movements and selective facial muscle contractions, and correctly answering questions on 29 occasions across six of the individuals tested. Polysomnography, a fancy word for sleep study, records your brain waves, the oxygen levels in your blood, heart rate, and breathing, as well as eye and leg movements during the study, according to the Mayo Clinic. In this study, the researchers had subjects move their eyes back and forth to count out numbers, for example, 8 minus 6, so they'd move their eyes back and forth two times. The scientists gave the subjects instructions while they were awake that they carried into their lucid dreams and remembered to be able to do on cue. The Northwestern study is very small, with just six people out of 36 who were able to both have lucid dreams and register correct answers to questions from inside. But if that number reflected the larger population, it would mean over 15% of people might lucid dream and be able to communicate in this way. To make sure the subjects were really truly in REM sleep, the scientists used the full capability of their polysomography setup to measure sleep physiology, like a highfalutin version of waving your hand in front of someone's face. One obstacle is that REM sleep must be stabilized, the scientists say, because even the eye movements themselves can wake people up sometimes. Benjamin Baird, a sleep researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who wasn't involved in the study, told Scientific American, The findings challenge our ideas about what sleep is. Siam has more. Sleep has classically been defined as unresponsiveness to external environmental stimuli, and that feature is still typically part of the definition today, Baird explains. This work pushes us to think carefully, rethink maybe, about some of those fundamental definitions about the nature of sleep itself and what's possible in sleep. The idea of learning during sleep has long become a sitcom cliché. Someone listens to a dating tape or a stop-smoking tape, for example, and suddenly acts odd because of subliminal cues. But this research indicates that people might really be able to study well asleep in a way that could help their waking life, like memorizing facts or visualizing high-performance sports or music. In addition, interactive dreaming could also be used to solve problems and promote creativity, the researchers conclude. The next moonshot ideas could be produced 
with an interactive method that can combine the creative advantages of dreaming with the logical advantages of wake. So, yeah, folks, a lot to unpack there and a very interesting article. Now, ironically enough, on that episode of Cozy Cryptids with uh, Tanner, uh, I brought up Edgar Casey and asked him if he knew who he was and gave a very brief background on it. And Edgar Casey was known as the Sleeping Prophet. And it's claimed that he basically digested uh, an entire school book um, from sleeping on it. And he learned everything inside and out like a photographic type uh, memory. So, yeah, again, very interesting. And it's just going to show folks that things that not too long ago we thought would always be a different frontier, things like sleep. Um, yeah, now it's getting to where they can communicate with people sleeping. Not quite in the way I thought that the article was going to lay out, but nevertheless, it's a start. So we'll see what comes of that. And as always, if anything comes out of that, like in future, if there's an update, I'll make sure I cover it over. And there'll be a link in that to the show notes as well, of course, so you can go and check it out for yourself. Now, the next one here is from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled Tantalizing Tasmanian Tiger Photo Teased. Now, Bob and some of the other listeners who also follow Expanded Perspectives, you'll know that's one of the boys' favorite things that they like to talk about is the thylacine. Now, as always with these articles from coast to coast, it's tagged from Tim Banal, who is basically the website guru over there. And this article is titled Tantalizing Tasmanian Tiger Photo Teased. And this came out on the 22nd of February. A Tasmanian tiger researcher has sparked something of a frenzy in the cryptozoological world with the bold claim that he has procured a photograph which will confirm that the said-to-be-extinct thylacine actually still roams the earth. The shocking assertion was made by Neil Waters of the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia in a YouTube video posted earlier today and provocatively titled, We Found a Thylacine. In the hastily filmed dispatch, he muses that, I've probably been acting a bit weird for the last few days, and then makes a rather jaw-dropping revelation. According to Waters, he had been checking the memory cards of game cameras that the group had placed in the wilderness of Tasmania in the hopes of spotting a thylacine, and in the process he discovered some photos that were pretty damn good. The researcher goes on to declare, I know what they are, and so do a few independent expert witnesses who have seen the pictures. Waters also indicates that the images have been sent to wildlife expert Nick Mooney, who is considered the preeminent analysis, sorry, analyst of alleged thylacine evidence. As for what the photos show, Waters said that there are three animals which he believes are a mother, father, and juvenile Tasmanian tiger. Although he concedes that the nature of the two adult creatures is somewhat hard to decipher, he confidently states with a smile that the baby is not ambiguous, the baby has stripes, a stiff tail, the hawk, the coarse hair, it's the right color, it's a quadruped, it's stocky, and it's got the right shaped ears. He argues that the photo is not only proof of the Tasmanian tiger still being alive, but also that there is a breeding population of the creature in Tasmania. Waters explained that his group is awaiting a proverbial verdict from Mooney, who is currently looking over the photos, but he expressed the hope that the expert will confirm his strongly held convictions that the creatures in the photo are thylacines. Should that be the case, Waters said, the animals would be reclassified as endangered rather than extinct. Fortunately, it would appear that we will not have to wait too long 
to see these tantalizing photos as Waters and the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia plan to release them to the public on March 1st. As one might imagine, Waters' video sent shockwaves throughout the cryptozoological community when it was posted on Monday, as he seems quite positive that the images are the proverbial holy grail of Tasmanian tiger evidence. That said, as any longtime student of the strange and unusual knows, one would be wise to temper their expectations, as history is replete with similar blockbuster claims that far more often than not wind up failing to live up to their premise. So, uh, yeah, folks, a lot a lot there. I mean, the thylacine is one of the most credible cryptids because it did exist. Like, we know that it existed in the past. It's just supposed to be extinct. Now, Bob in Oklahoma and a few other listeners of the show, Brad in Michigan, and I'm sure there are some others, uh, we're all fans of Expanded Perspectives, and that's one of their favorite cryptids is the thylacine. So, I'm going to drop a note over to uh, the boys at um, Expanded Perspectives and make sure they know about this article as well. So, yeah, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, like I say, if you want to check that one out. I've got another interesting one here for you from Coast to Coast AM. And this one is titled, Watch, Odd UFO Spotted in French Newscast. And this is from the 19th of February. An odd moment during a French newscast appears to show a UFO zip through the sky behind a correspondent who is stationed in Moscow. The curious incident occurred during a broadcast from Russia's Today French affiliate last week as an anchor was speaking to reporter Verga Goffman about tensions between Russia and the EU. While that bit of geopolitical intrigue was being discussed in the foreground, a pair of dark objects can be seen in the background, descending from the sky at an incredibly high rate of speed over the Russian capital city. It would seem that the very brief appearance of the fast-moving objects went unnoticed by the anchor, as his conversation with Goffman gave no indication that he'd spotted something amiss. UFO enthusiasts, however, did catch the appearance of the anomalies. To that end, indefatigable researcher Scott Waring posited that the incident was an international act on the part of extraterrestrials looking to expose the public to the truth slowly. Noting that the UFOs have been spotted several times on newscasts over the years, he mused that it seems aliens are taking serious steps at getting caught during live broadcasts. As one might imagine, more skeptical observers have a less fantastic take on what can be seen in the segment. Specifically, fastidious UFO video analysis Scott Brando argued that the ET craft is in fact a kind of optical illusion, where, wherein flying insects appear to possess a rod-like shape, by way of motion blur. In which camp do you fall, alien spaceship or misidentified bugs? Share your take at Coast to Coast AM Facebook. So let's just watch this really briefly, folks, and I'll give you my very quick um, thoughts on it. Okay, so it's only 35 seconds. I can see what they're saying. Like, I've seen these spirals or rods, they call them sometimes, and lots of people are saying that it's just got to do with the camera not being able to capture an insect properly. Um, it shows it go behind her, so it's definitely not in front of the camera shows it go from right to left across your screen and shows it come out the other side yeah it's not overly clear but could be something to it um yeah we'll just continue to watch that we'll see if anything else comes out about it um in the near future and if so i'll cover it on another episode i'll give you an update so here we are folks with the last article for this evening and this one is from the uk and this one is from metro metro.co.uk now 
this is a person who I know is interested in the paranormal and the unexplained. And the article is titled, Robbie Williams Selling Haunted Wiltshire Manor Ahead of Move to Switzerland. Robbie Williams has reportedly put his haunted Wiltshire Manor up for sale as he plans a move to Switzerland with his wife Ada Field and their four children. The singer bought the eight-bedroom property in 2008 and has spoken in the past about how it gives him the creeps, particularly his daughter Teddy's room. A source told the manor Robbie was in a different phase of his life when he bought Compton Bassett House. It seemed like an idyllic hideaway in the English countryside, but he never really felt at home there. In a matter of months, he realized it wasn't where he and Ada wanted to settle. The angel singer is said to be reshuffling his property portfolio since deciding to buy in Switzerland. We have got a, a, a very, very old property. It is like a thousand years old, Robbie said of the Wiltshire Pile on Instagram Live. There is one room that I am suspicious of. It gives me the creeps. Teddy, our daughter, was sleeping in there. She doesn't anymore. When she was getting old enough to speak, I said to her, Do you like the bedroom? Do you like the house? And she said, I don't like that house. I said, Why? And she said, That room scares me. And it's a freaking massive manor, folks. Just <laughs> They've got a photo here, and it looks like uh, Versailles or something. He went on. I said, Okay, it scares me too. You don't have to sleep there anymore. Robbie and his family, including kids Charlton, Coco, and Bo, lived in Geneva for six months in the summer amid the coronavirus pandemic to make sure they wanted to live there permanently. It was previously reported that his new Swiss Swish Swiss pad cost £24 million, with the Take That star apparently delighted with their new home. So yeah, folks, um, I know that Robbie Williams has talked about UFOs and ghosts and that in the past, and I do find it interesting that... Um, He's got this purportedly haunted estate. I should ask him if he'll give it to me uh, for a good price, but uh, yeah, I don't think I'd have the money for that in five lifetimes, unfortunately, folks. Uh, if there is uh, any millionaire or billionaire oligarchs out there listening who want to donate, hey, I'll, I'll happily uh, take an estate off your hands, but uh, I don't think it's happening in this lifetime for me outside of that. All right, folks, so that's the news of the dam for this evening. And now we're going to get back to what was going on in New Mexico in 1964 and what the findings of J. Allen Hynek were and the rest of the details on this fascinating Lonnie Zamora case. One of these three men is an expert on unidentified flying objects, commonly called flying saucers. What is your name, please? My name is J. Allen Hynek. Only one of these men is the real J. Allen Hynek. The other two are imposters and will try to fool this panel. On to tell the truth. I, J. Allen Hynek, am a professor of astronomy and director of a large university observatory. I am also consultant to the United States Air Force on unidentified flying objects, sometimes popularly called flying saucers. Part of my job is on-the-spot investigation of sightings of strange things in the sky. Recently, again, there have been a rash of reports of mysterious flying objects. One New Mexico policeman described in detail a brilliant white egg-shaped object which roared away as he approached. A state police captain says he found the ground still smoldering several hours later. While many of the hundreds of sightings each year can be explained as the result of natural phenomena, others so far seem to be without a logical explanation. Signed, J. Allen Hynek. 
this flying object that the New Mexico policeman cited was built like an upside-down bathtub, I read, that glowed. And it said it could have been one of those things that the Air Force is doing that takes off sort of like that. Is that possible? I hardly think so, but uh, we have to keep an open mind. Astronomer and Air Force consultant on unidentified flying objects. Therefore, will the real Dr. J. Allen Hynek please? And up. Just to set the record straight, Dr. Heineck is chairman of the Department of Astronomy at Northwestern University and director of the Lindheimer Astronomic Research Center. So long-term listeners to the program would have heard me mention the name J. Allen Heineck many times. Now, in the field of ufology, there's no bigger a rock star than J. Allen Heineck. He is easily one of the most methodical and dedicated researchers of the subject. Now, Dr. Hynek, one of the things that annoyed him to no end was the fact that people were ridiculed for seeing things in the sky. He felt that this caused many excellent cases to be lost forever because people wouldn't come forward and discuss what they had seen. Now, that clip that I just played for you before is very important because that clip comes from a game show called To Tell the Truth. So many of you have heard that saying, it was paraphrased by Eminem in his song with the real Slim Shady, Please Stand Up. Well, that came from this game show. They would have three people on saying that they were all one certain individual. And then they, at the end there, as you heard them say, with the real J. Allen Hynek, Please Stand Up. Now, it's interesting because that episode of the game show was recorded and released on May 25th of 1964. So pretty much a month to the day of the Lonnie Zamora sighting. So we're going to take a time machine back about a month before that game show to when Dr. Hynek turned up in Socorro. Now, when he turned up to Socorro, he, of course, took his usual methodical and diligent approach to this case. Now, I've got an eight-page report that J. Allen Hynek filed, and I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. So... It's titled, Report on Socorro, New Mexico Trip. On Tuesday, April the 28th, 1964, in response to a call from Captain Quintanilla, I enplaned for Albuquerque to meet with Major Connor of Kirtland Air Force Base and Associates. I called a prospective graduate student in astronomy, now working at Kirtland Air Force Base before I left the office, asking him to meet me. This proved totally unnecessary, since when the plane from Denver arrived in Albuquerque, I heard some murmurs from the front part of the plane to the effect that there must be a celebrity aboard, and discovered to my amazement that, as I left the plane, numerous flashbulbs began popping, and I was importuned for one interview after another. Since I knew nothing, there was very little that I could say, and consequently I got out of the situation very easily. It would appear that Major Connor's PIO man was very effective. I had unfortunately neglected to ask Major Connor in advance to keep things quiet. As soon as I got the reporters out of my hair, we went to Major Connor's office at Kirtland Air Force Base, where I called Dr. La Paz by phone to ask whether he might go down to Socorro with us. He was unable to make it, but told me that a number of years before he had worked with Zamora on a field trip in search of a fallen meteorite. He gave Zamora a very clean bill of health and said that he was a completely reliable person. We then headed down in an Air Force car from Socorro, or sorry, for Socorro, which is some 75 miles south of Albuquerque, and when we were nearly there, we had a flat tire. It turned out that the jack was missing, 
although the car had been reported in excellent shape, and so we had to hail passers-by, finally snagging one car whose occupants indicated that they would inform the sheriff's office when they got into town. Time passed, and we snagged another car, this time with four women in it. They took me into town so that I could relay the call, and this was rather fortunate, all in all because I had the chance to have a preliminary with Sergeant Chavez before the rest. Major Connor and Mr. James Ray, the prospective graduate student, got down. It was during this preliminary interview in the jail that Sergeant Chavez told me that Zamora was getting disgusted with the whole thing and with the general misrepresentation he was a victim of. After some general reluctance, Sergeant Chavez agreed to have Zamora there that evening after dinner, provided that Zamora and he could talk to me privately. I agreed to this, and when the repaired car finally got down to its occupants, we went to dinner, paid for all of the meals of the two from Albuquerque, both this day and the next, and after dinner. Major Connor and Mr. Ray went back to Albuquerque, and I went to the jail to talk for the next two hours with Zamora and Chavez. After a fairly lengthy time spent in getting them warmed up to the subject, I got the major sketch of the situation. During one or two times when Zamora, who was on duty, had to step out of the room, Chavez told me of some of Zamora's reactions. Apparently, Zamora was not going to say anything about it, but it was at Chavez's advice that he did. He then apparently asked Chavez whether Chavez thought that he, Zamora, should first speak to the priest before saying anything. Chavez indicated that this was up to him. Chavez described Zamora's radio call to him on the evening and indicated that Zamora had asked him to come out alone. Chavez indicated that when he got to Zamora, he found him very badly shaken, pale, and sweating. He attempted to kid him, saying, What's the matter, Lonnie? You look like you've seen the devil. And Zamora stated, Well, maybe I have. Chavez indicated that Zamora was reluctant to go down into the small ravine and asked that Chavez precede him, even though it was still bright daylight. It was Chavez who first discovered the imprints. During the interview, Zamora was far from talkative, and there seemed to be a few minor contradictions as to just where he was when he first radioed in, etc., and even as to how many times he had radioed in. Both Zamora and Chavez appeared to me to be hoping that I could tell them that this had been a secret Air Force device, so that they could dismiss the whole thing from their minds. Zamora was still evidently troubled over some of the town's reactions, and Chavez was disturbed by the hullabaloo and the misrepresentation, and the flurry of Me Too reports. After my talk with the two men at the courthouse, I called Captain Holder and asked him to have a nightcap with me. He came down to pick me up and invited me to his home instead, and transmitted to me a carbon of his report and the statement describing himself. Exhibit A. Captain Holder was most helpful and anxious to demonstrate that he had done a good job in procuring measurements and other data before the coming of the crowd of curiosity seekers. I, of course, questioned Captain Holder as to his impressions about Zamora's reliability and of the connection of the trucks with the siding, etc. Sorry, tracks with the siding, etc. And he, as did all others whom I subsequently questioned, indicated that the markings were, to all intensive purposes, fresh and were associated burned or that the burning seemed to be sporadic. Clumps of grass in close proximity to the burned ones were untouched, while others, just a short distance away from the unburned ones, were again burned, etc. I put up at a local motel, making arrangements to be taken out to the site first thing in the morning. Mr. Zamora and Sergeant Chavez joined me at breakfast the next morning, but just previous to that, 
a man whose name I did not get. He introduced himself as from the FAA and indicated to me that it was strange that their radars had not picked up anything. He felt that MTI radars can pick up cars on the road, and this object should certainly have been picked up by the radar equipment. In going out to the site, I asked that precisely the same road be traveled that was traveled on the evening of the sighting, and so we did. And as we went along, Zamora pointed out the place where the speeding car had turned into his line of sight from a side road, and we followed the pursuit path, going to the place about half a mile south of town, where Zamora then pointed in the direction in which he had seen the flame and heard a loud roar. It must be remembered that this time he was giving chase to a speeding car, and it would seem that, to be diverted from this jolly procedure, the noise and or light must have been fairly strong. Zamora did not describe the light to me in the detail that he has described it to Captain Holder's report. He stressed only the roar and the fact that he thought the mare's dynamite shack had exploded and that somebody might be in trouble. From that point on, his report to me was virtually identical to the report he gave to Captain Holder. His three attempts to get up the hill, his sighting of the object at a distance, as his line of sight went longitudinally down the small arroyo, it was at this point that he thought he saw an overturned car standing, however, either on the trunk or on its radiator. He described that at this point, he picked up the radio and called back to Sergeant Chavez. There is a little contradiction here, probably not serious, as to where he made his call, and exactly how many calls he made. He then stated that he proceeded down the very poor gravel road, temporarily losing sight of the object, behind a slight rise in the land, that is, behind one of the hillocks that formed an arroyo between them. He thus came up upon the object from behind the hill and from the side. So, to speak, he apparently saw the object again while he was driving and continued to drive for some distance. He finally stopped the car at the clearing just before the ground descends into the little arroyo. See photograph number two. Photograph number two is important in that it shows how close he was to the object. It is clear from this that any common object would certainly have been easily recognized. It would seem virtually incredible that an ordinary object, such as a balloon, helicopter, private small plane, etc., could have remained unidentified, and further, could have caused Zamora to become as frightened as he did. Zamora drove up to this spot, windows rolled down, and looked to his left out of the window, to see the object. At this point, he indicated that he still thought that it might have been an overturned car. It is not clear whether he made a call to the station at this time. Presumably he did. But in any event, he knocked the mic to the floor. So he got out of the car, apparently in some excitement. He started to walk around the object. Sorry, walk towards the object. But apparently did not get very far before he heard some noises. The noises were described as two or three bangs, as though someone was shutting a door. The space visitors were undoubtedly saying, let's get the hell out of here. And this was followed almost immediately by a roar. He did not describe the pitches of the roar to me as well as he did in Captain Holder's report. Apparently by this time, Zamora was thoroughly tired of going into details. It is clear that he turned tail at this time and ran for cover, thinking the object was about to explode. He banged his leg against the rear fender of the car as he tried to round it, at which time his glasses and his sunglasses fell off onto the ground, but he did not stop to retrieve them. This is an indication of the state of panic he was in. He ran some distance be behind his car, as indicated in photo number three, which shows him crouching down, but not as he had done that Friday evening. At that time, he had crouched quite close to the ground, 
covering his eyes with his arm, and was at this time that he saw the object rise to essentially the level of his car and proceed in the direction of the dynamite shack, shown in figure 4, which shows the small dynamite shack about 7 or 8 feet high, off to the right, and shows Zamora's arms extended, his left arm pointing in the direction in which he had seen the object originally, its takeoff position, and the right arm pointing in the general direction in which the object had disappeared. A shadow cast by Zamora in the picture, which was taken approximately at 10 a.m., at which time the sun was in the southeast quadrant of the sky, indicates that Zamora is facing southwest, with the shack somewhat southwest by west. The dynamite shack is also shown in figure 5, which shows the car parked as it was on the evening of the sighting. Zamora was looking out of the left-hand driver's window, etc., at the object when he parked the car. Photo number 6 shows the position from which Zamora first saw the object, whose location was approximately under the X marked on the photograph. It was from this distance that he thought that the object looked like an overturned car. Photograph 7 is the position Zamora was in, looking at the object disappearing, said object having missed the dynamite shack by some 3 feet, according to Zamora. Photo number 8 is approximately the position Chavez and Zamora were, would have been when Chavez first saw the marking the object had left. Photo number 9 is 180 degrees approximately from that of number 6. Number 9 shows the town of Socorro in the distance, looking down longitudinally through the gully towards the road, along which Zamora was stationed when he first saw the object. Looking into the direction Socorro to the spot from which photo number 9 was taken. Resume. From all of the above and from my personal observations, I would conclude the following. That Zamora, although not overly bright or articulate, is basically sincere, honest, and reliable. He would not be capable of contriving a complex hoax, nor would his temperament indicate that he would have the slightest interest in doing so. He was simply a cop on duty, relinquishing one discharge of that duty, chasing a speeding car for another which he thought was of more immediate importance, investigating the possible explosion of a dynamite shack. His fright was genuine, and his feeling that he had seen something truly unusual is attested by the fact that he asked whether he should speak to the priest first before saying anything about it. Any question of hallucination seems clearly out. He is a non-drinking man, and he is a solid, well-built, physically healthy individual. Photograph number 10. He is a cop who looks as though he could be pretty gruff with his customers, and in fact, his complaint about the UFO sighting was that it did not allow him to give out his full quota of tickets for the day. Photograph N11 is of Sergeant Chavez, who is considerably more articulate than Zamora, and appears to have a greater awareness of things and relations than Zamora does. Both men seem to give every indication of being devoted to duty and being basically simple and honest. Photograph 12 is a close-up of one of the markings, made very shortly after the craft had departed. By the time that I got to the area, it had been so badly trampled over that I could make no assessment of the burned areas. There appears to be a fair amount of charred particles mixed in with the dirt, and some charred cardboard was also found. In conclusion, therefore, that Zamora saw a tangible physical object under good daylight illumination and from fairly close range, at the closest almost as little as 100 feet. It appears essential that we discover what the physical object actually was. It is clear that the UFO aficionados are going to make a great case of this one. Two days before my visit, Mr. Lorenzen, husband of Carol Lorenzen of APRO, had visited and taken numerous samples of charred remains and of rocks and ground 
etc. I had not been at the site more than 10 minutes when Mr. Sanford of NICAP showed up and took samples, photographs, etc. It was remarked at the time as to how Menzel would go about explaining this one. No doubt was left in my mind, but that NICAP and APRO, and possibly others, would consider this to be the best authenticated landing sighting on record. They will use it very likely as a lever for a congressional investigation, and will deride any statement attempting to explain it away as a balloon, conventional helicopter, etc. They will set great store on the paucity of the burns and the relative lack of disturbance would have been very much greater. They will likely say, they will probably say that the burns were plasma burns, which can scorch locally, I understand. It is therefore essential to consider this one of the major UFO sightings in the history of the Air Force's consideration of the subject and to spare no effort in establishing whether maneuvers of any sort were taking place in the locality, either on the part of the Air Force, the Army, or even the Navy. However, I am quite certain that it will not be sufficient for the Air Force, in this case, to indicate that the sighting was probably a new type of craft being tested, or that a secret war maneuver was in progress. Unless the log of such maneuvers is produced, and better yet, the entire crime reenacted, preferably in Zamora's presence, I recognize that this will be a very difficult task, but in view of the importance of this case, I think every attempt should be made to do this. It will require, very possibly, the attention of the Secretary of the Air Force himself. It would be well further for files protection of the Air Force to tabulate from its records and from available records from other sources of other reported landings, such as, for instance, the chronological list which appeared in the January and February 1964 issue of the Flying Saucer Review. Ignorance of what NICAP and APRO will designate as similar cases will be of little help. In about a month, I shall have occasion to return to the Socorro area, at which time I will discuss with Zamora and Chavez, after this excitement has completely simmered down, some of the finer points of this sighting, such as the location at which radio calls were made, etc., the wind at that time was blowing very strongly from the south, and I established by repeated questioning that the object had taken off either at right angles to the wind or partially into the wind. I have not stressed the insignia which Zamora reported, since he drew exactly the same thing which he had drawn for Captain Holder. I did question him many times on the shape of the object as to whether it had clear-cut edges or fuzzy edges, as to bits of color, etc., but the results were virtually the same as the information given to Captain Holder. The object was egg-shaped, had the inverted V insignia on it, two legs seemed to be protruding from the object, which was not chrome, but whitish aluminium, and it was further established that the great roar during its initial takeoff disappeared suddenly, and the horizontal flight away and over the dynamite shack was noiseless. I questioned Mr. Art Burns of the FBI and several others who had been on the site within the first hours after the sighting, as to the alleged freshness of the tracks. They were all of the opinion that the tracks were indeed very fresh. Although Zamora was the only witness to the actual sighting, nine people in all saw the markings. Altogether, nine people saw the markings within hours of the sighting, and before the hours of curiosity seekers descended upon the place the following day. Sorry, that's hordes of curiosity seekers. After I visited the place of the sighting, I had several other talks with local people, and in particular with the reporter of the El Defensor Chieftain, or perhaps it was the editor. It's a small paper. I believe that I talked with Mr. Lewis A. Riddell, 
the publisher of the El Defensor. He had gone into this thing quite thoroughly and in a quite sedate and unexcited manner. His story published Tuesday, April 28, 1964, is an excellent summary of the sighting. It includes one point not mentioned previously. At least one other person, an unidentified tourist traveling north on US-85, saw the UFO just before it landed in a gully. Opal Grinder, manager of Whiting Brothers Service Station on 85 North, said the man stopped at the station and remarked that aircraft flew low around here. Grinder replied that there were many helicopters in the vicinity, and the tourist said it was a funny-looking helicopter if that's what it was. The man said further that the object had flown over his car. It actually was headed straight for the gully, where it landed moments later. The tourist also commented that he had seen a police car heading up the hill. This was apparently Lonnie Zamora's car. I believe that we can dispense with the rash of other reports that sprang up immediately thereafter. This was the case near Santa Fe, the case in Montana, the girl with scorched eyes because she looked at a flying saucer in Albuquerque, and others. But it is essential that the Socorro case be given the treatment. I also questioned well in Socorro my old friend, Dr. Jack Wuthman, president of the New Mexico School of Mines, who said he knew of no geophysical or other types of experiments going on in the area at the time. He, as the rest of the townspeople, were puzzled by the event, but the general underground slull of opinion was that it would turn out to be some device which the government still had under wraps. Not one person whom I talked to with in the least, by either implication or innuendo, challenged Zamora's veracity. Finally, the drawings which Captain Holder and his associates made, when replotted according to scale, already enclosed with the report of Captain Holder, already sent to you, which indicate that the di diagonals between the markings intersected perpendicularly. It would appear essential that for the case to be fairly closed out, if the interpretation is that of a new device and its dimensions be shown to match the markings found on the ground, that is, that the device finally selected as the culprit be indeed capable of producing the marks observed. I left Socorro shortly afternoon on Wednesday, April 29th. Major Connor and James Ray having come down late that morning to pick me up. We had a late lunch en route to Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, I had the opportunity to talk with Mr. Arthur Burns of the FBI, who added nothing new to the situation, but confirmed the general reliability and stability of Mr. Zamora. He also was of the opinion that the marks might have been made, sorry, might well have been fresh ones. I also called the mother of the young girl whose eyes were allegedly burned by having looked too long at a flying saucer and found that the name of the doctor who treated her and who had confirmed the burns was a Dr. Best of Albuquerque. Major Connor indicated that he would investigate further. That is all. Additional notes on the report. It should be noted that, at the time Zamora saw the insignia, the craft was well illuminated by sunlight, which was streaming in from Zamora's right. It might be well to perform some experiments with placards with insignia and different patterns inscribed thereon to see how well these are visible under good lighting at 100 to 200 feet. Additional note. What is the power of Zamora's glasses? Does he suffer from stigmatism? Additional note. Several things are a pity in this situation. One is that there was not an additional witness. Second is that no photographs were taken. Third, that no radars picked up the object. And fourth, that the witness who we did have was not a better observer and more articulate. Recommendations. The object which produced this, if it was a new device under test or in maneuvers, 
be brought to the same location, and movies be taken of it departing in the same manner described by Zamora, and under the same lighting conditions. This then could be played at any future hearings on flying saucers. This, it seems to me, could go a very long way towards exploding the myth of flying saucers, and might do more good than all the previous years of propaganda. So folks, as you can see there, as I told you, J. Allen Hynek was a very, very articulate and very fastidious person. You can see that he even noted the times he had lunch, the hotel he stayed in, etc. And he was basically there for a little under a day. So he came down in the evening and he left the next morning. But in that time, he interviewed Lonnie Zamora, he went out to the site, he interviewed Chavez, and he spent several hours with each of them. Now Lonnie had also made sketches of the landing site and craft, which were included in the case file. And there rested the events of the first week of the Zamora sighting. So a lot going on for a week, even in 1964. Now, it gets interesting even more so from here, folks, because now I'm going to read to you the actual Blue Book case file in its entirety. So this is the Blue Book case file on Lonnie Zamora's sighting. About 5.45 p.m., 4.24.1964, while in Socorro, two police car, 64 Pontiac White, started to chase a car due south from west side of courthouse. Car was apparently speeding and was about three blocks in front. At point on Old Rodeo Street, extension of Park Street South, near George Morillo residence, about an eighth of a mile south of Spring Street, the chase car was going straight ahead towards the rodeo grounds. Car chased was a new black Chevrolet. It might have been a boy about 17. Chase car still about three blocks ahead. At this time, heard a roar and saw a flame in the sky to the southwest some distance away, possibly a half a mile or, more, or a mile. Came to mind that a dynamite shack in the area had blown up. D decided to leave chased car. Flame was bluish and sort of orange too. Could not tell size of flame. Sort of motionless flame. Slowly descending. Was still driving car and could not pay too much attention to the flame. It was a narrow type of flame. It was like a stream down, a funnel type, narrower at top than at bottom. Flame possibly three degrees or so in width, not very wide. Flame about twice as wide at bottom as top, and about four times as high as top was wide. Did not notice any object at top. Did not note if top of flame was level. Sun was to the west and did not help vision. Had green sunglasses over prescription glasses. Could not see bottom of flame because it was behind the hill. No smoke noted. Noted some commotion at the bottom. Dust? Possibly from windy day. Wind was blowing hard. Clear, sunny sky otherwise. Just a few clouds scattered over area. Noise was a roar, not a blast. Not like a jet. Changed from high frequency to low frequency, and then stopped. Roar lasted possibly ten seconds. Was going toward it at the time on the rough gravel road. Saw flame as long as heard the sound. Flame same color as best as recall. Sound distinctly from high to low until it disappeared. Windows both were down. No other spectators noted. No traffic except the car in front. And car in front might have heard it, but possibly did not see it, because car in front was too close to hill in front to see the flame. After the roar and flame, did not know anything. While going up the somewhat steep, rough hill, had to back up and try again, two more times. Got up about halfway first time, 
Wheels started skidding. Roar still going on. Had to back down and try twice and rock. While beginning third time, noise and flame not noted. After got to top, traveled slowly on the gravel road westwardly. Noted nothing for a while. For possibly ten or fifteen seconds. Went slow, looking around for the shack. Did not recall exactly where the dynamite shack was. Suddenly noted a shiny type object to south, about 150 to 200 yards. It was off the road. At first glance, stopped. It looked at first like a car turned upside down. Thought some kids might have turned over. Saw two people in white coveralls very close to the object. One of these persons seemed to turn and look straight at my car and seemed startled. Seemed to jump quickly somewhat. At this time, I started moving my car towards them quickly, with idea to help. Had stopped about only a couple seconds. Object was like aluminum. It was whitish against the mesa background, but not chrome. Seemed like O-shape, and I at first glance took it to be an overturned, white car. Car appeared to be up on radiator or on trunk. This at first glance. The only time I saw these two persons was when I had stopped, for possibly two seconds or so, to glance at the object. I don't recall noting any particular shape, or possibly any hats or headgear. These persons appeared normal in shape, but possibly they were small adults or large kids. They paid attention, then paid attention to road while drove towards scene. Radioed to sheriff's office. Socorro 2 to Socorro, possible 1044, which is an accident. I'll be 106, which is busy, out of the car. Checking the car down in the Arroyo. Stopped car, was still talking on radio, started to get out, mic fell down, reached back to put up mic, then replaced radio mic in slot, got out of car and started to go down where I knew the object was. Hardly turned around from car when heard roar, not exactly a blast, very loud roar. At that close was real loud, not like a jet, I know what a jet sounds like, started low frequency quickly, then roar rose in frequency, to a higher tone, and in loudness, from loud to very loud. At same time as Roar saw flame. Flame was under the object. Object was starting to go straight up, slowly up. Object slowly rose straight up. Flame was light blue, and bottom was sort of orange color from this angle. Saw the side of the object, not end, as first noted. Difficult to describe flame. Thought from Roar it might blow up. Flame might have come from underside of object, at middle. Possibly a four-foot area. Very rough guess. Cannot describe flame further except blue and orange. No smoke except dust in immediate area. As soon as saw flame and heard roar, turned away. Ran away from object but did, did turn head towards object. Bumped leg on car. Back fender area. Car facing southwest. Glasses fell to ground. Left them there. Ran to north. Car between him and object. Object was oval. In shape. It was smooth, no windows or doors. As roar started, it was still on or near ground. Noted red lettering of some type. See illustration. Insignia was about two and a half inches high and about two inches wide. I guess. Sorry, that's feet. Two and a half feet high and two feet wide, I guess. Was in middle of object. Object still like aluminum white. After fell by car and glasses fell off, kept running to north with car between me and object. Glance back couple of times. Noted object to rise about level of car, about 20 to 25 feet, at a guess. Took, I guess, about six seconds when object started to rise and I glanced back. 
I ran, I guess, about halfway to where I ducked down. About 50 feet from the car is where I ducked down, just over the edge of the hill. I guess I had run about 25 feet when I glanced back and saw the object level with the car, and it appeared about directly over the place where it rose from. I was still running, and I jumped just over the hill. I stopped because I did not hear the roar. I was scared of the roar, and I had planned to continue running down the hill. I turned around toward the object, and at the same time put my head towards the ground, covering my face with my arms. Being that there was no roar, I looked up, and I saw the object going away from me. It did not come any closer to me. It appeared to go straight in line and at about the same height, possibly 10 to 15 feet from the ground, and it cleared the dynamite shack by about 3 feet. Shack about 8 feet high. Object was traveling very fast. It seemed to rise up and take off immediately across country. I ran back to my car, and as I ran back, I kept an eye on the object. I picked up my glasses, I left the sunglasses on the ground, got into the car, and radioed to Nep Lopez, the radio operator, to look out of the window to see if you could see an object. He asked, What is it? I answered, It looks like a balloon. I don't know if he saw it. If Nep looked out of his window, which faces north, he couldn't have seen it. I did not tell him at the moment which window to look out of. As I was calling Nep, I could still see the object. The object seemed to lift up slowly and to get small in the distance, very fast. It seemed to just clear the Box Canyon or Six Mile Canyon Mountain. It disappeared as it went over the mountain. It had no flame whatsoever as it was traveling over the ground and no smoke or noise. Feeling in good health, last drink two or three beers was over a month ago. Noted no odors. Noted no sounds other than described. Gave directions to Nep Lopez at radio and to Sergeant M.S. Chavez to get there. Went down to where the object had been, and I noted the brush was burning in several places. At that time, I heard Sergeant Chavez, New Mexico State Police at Socorro, calling me on radio for my location, and I returned to my car. I told him he was looking at me. Then Sergeant Chavez came up, asked me what the trouble was, because I was sweating, and he told me I was white, very pale. I asked the sergeant to see what I saw, and that was the burning bush. Then Sergeant Chavez and I went to the spot, and Sergeant Chavez pointed out the tracks. When I first saw the object, when I thought it might be a car, I saw what appeared to be two legs of some type from the object to the ground. At the time, I didn't pay much attention to what it was. I thought it was an accident. I saw the two persons. I didn't pay any attention to the two legs. The two legs were at the bottom of the object, slanted outwards to the ground. The object might have been about three and a half feet from the ground at that time. I just glanced at it. Can't tell how long I saw object second time. The close time, possibly 20 seconds, just a guess. From time got out of car, glanced at object, ran from object, jumped over edge of hill, then got back to car and radioed as object disappeared. As my mic fell, as I got out of car at the scene area, I heard about two or three loud thumps, like someone possibly hammering or shutting a door or doors hard. These thumps were possibly a second or less apart. This was just before the roar. The persons were not seen when I drove to the scene area, just before Sergeant Chavez got to the scene. I got my pen and drew a picture of the insignia on the object on a paper bag. So, there we have it. That is the official Blue Book report on what Lonnie Zamora saw. Now, in the years since, there have been two primary theories of what Lonnie Zamora saw that day. 
both of which have cropped up again and again since the earliest days, each subsequent version announced as if it was a new thought or discovery. The first is that Zamora saw an experimental vehicle being tested, with the most common solution being some version of the lunar landing module, just then in its initial stages of development for the Apollo program. Jacques Vallée, a Hynek protege, noted in his diary, In the meantime, the Air Force continues to look into a curious fact I have uncovered. The insignia seen by Patrolman Zamora looks very much like the logo of Astropower, a subsidiary of the Douglas Aircraft Corporation. I found the logo in an ad they recently published in an engineering journal. I am suspicious of this aspect of the sighting. To my knowledge, there has never been a genuine report of a saucer with an insignia painted on the side. Could the Socorro object be a military prototype? And indeed, the Astropower logo does have a striking similarity to Lonnie Zamora's sketch. I can't argue with that. These theories fail to reflect, let alone account for, the fact that an extensive investigation was undertaken exploring it exactly this possibility. For instance, a list was drawn up of all the major lunar vehicle subcontractors. Letters and other inquiries went out to these contractors. And I'm looking at a copy of one of these letters right here, folks. And it basically says, Initially believed to be observation of lunar module type configuration. Effort to date cannot place vehicle at site. Case carried as unidentified pending additional data. Sorry, now that's a card from uh, ATIC, which is that group that I've been referring to in the CIA notes. Sighting of landing by Lonnie Zamora. See case file, it says, and it's got a few other little bits, but it's an interesting little card. The idea of it being the lunar landing vehicle is also discounted by the fact that the only working prototype was located at Edwards Air Force Base, which is two states and 550 miles away, and that the first test flight didn't occur until October of 1964, which is six months after Lonnie's sighting. Maybe on top of being a lunar lander, it was also a time machine, folks. The other vehicle suggested is the Surveyor Lunar Lander prototype, which was being tested at Holloman Air Force Base, which is adjacent to the White Sands Missile Range. In 2006, the group New Mexicans for Science and Reason claimed that the smoking gun was a log from Holloman for the day of Zamora's sighting. The problems with this smoking gun are manifest. Most obviously is the fact that the test was scheduled to end six hours before Lonnie saw the UFO. More important were the various configurations of the surveyor prototypes and mock-ups. None of them looked anything close to what Lonnie described. But aside from the testing times and the obvious physical dissimilarities between the surveyor and Lonnie's drawings, there still lies the biggest problem with the smoking gun claim. Surveyor was not a self-launching vehicle at all, and the tests clearly indicate that the test involved lift by helicopter. But Zamora's attention was first attracted by a roar, and the liftoff was accompanied by a roar and flames, followed by silence. From Zamora's close distance, even if he had visually misidentified the helicopter-surveyor configuration, the sound of the helicopter blades whirring would have been loud and distinct. Such theories also fail to account for the fact that the incident took place just on the outskirts of the White Sands Missile Range, and that the initial investigator, Captain Holder, was in fact in charge of the White Sands Stallion Range adjacent to Socorro, and that he also contacted Halliman Air Force Base. All of this argues against such a possibility, because basically Captain Holder would have known what was going on, and 
Even if it had to do with Holloman and not White Sands, he contacted them, and they told him nothing was going on. Well, some diehard cynics might argue that the vehicle was so secret that the Air Force was allowed to engage in an extensive and time-consuming goose chase, such arguments would also have to encompass why it was kept even from the White House, which, as indicated in the telex included earlier, had pressured the Air Force for answers. The theory of a hoax, this is the other explanation, right? The theory of a hoax perpetrated against Zamora has also been in currency since the time of the event itself. The most recent was the discovery of a 1968 letter from Dr. Linus Pauling to Dr. Sterling Colgate, then president of the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, a.k.a. New Mexico Tech, located in Socorro. In a handwritten postscript, Pauling asked Colgate about Zamora. Now, also I want you to remember that when J. Allen Hynek was in Socorro, he visited with Dr. Colgate, so you would think if he knew anything, and him and Hynek being old friends, you think he would have disclosed it to him. So here's this handwritten note. P.S. Do you know Police Sergeant Lonnie Zamora of Socorro, who reported seeing a flying saucer on the ground on April 24, 1964? Sergeant Sam Chavez question. What is the NMI, which is the school initials, feeling about this incident? Now, so there was the letter to him, and here's Colgate's handwritten reply. I have a good indication of the student who engineered hoax. Student has left. Cheers. Now, that's very short and mysterious, isn't it? One sentence, basically. Now, contacted after the discovery of this letter, Sterling was reported to have stood by the statement. But when pressed for details, he only cryptically replied, I will ask a friend but he and other students did not want their cover blown. Others at New Mexico Tech also had tales of being told that students had perpetrated a hoax. Some tales even include the use of a rear projection device in full daylight in the rugged arroyo, but the claim of perpetrating a hoax is easily made after the fact, with no evidence provided. And of course, those who would hoax one person are just as apt to deceive another. And the fact of possibility of such a hoax was researched by Dr. Hynek, in reaction to such a suggestion by Dr. Donald Manzel of Harvard, a self-dedicated, if imprecise, debunker of the era. The difference here was that Dr. Manzel's suggestion was that it was a hoax perpetrated by local high school students. Here are those letters' relevant portions. 29th April, 1965. Dr. Donald Menzel, Mrs. Lyle Boyd, Harvard College Observatory, Cambridge 38, Massachusetts. Dear Don and Lyle, at long last I am prepared to make a reply to your letter of February 19. I am also enclosing a piece of the identical type of cardboard originally picked up by me at the landing site. The only difference between this cardboard and the one that picked up and turned into the Air Force is that the original piece had charred edges which may or may not have had any connection with the alleged landing. But that it was charred, I will attest to. This sort of cardboard gets caught under many of the bushes in that area. As you know, the winds there can get very high in the windy season, and you not only see tumbleweeds batting across the county, but papers, old lunch boxes, packing crates, etc., also merrily batting around. These get wedged in under the bushes and stay there to weather sometimes for a year or more. I would judge this cardboard, as you can see, has plainly been weathered quite some time, and is hardly the kind that, 
would have been used to fake the model of a spaceship. I should mention that I discussed this whole matter with Major Quintilla, and he and I are in agreement on what follows. I don't think we can say too much about the flame, which could be pretty subjective. A swirl of dust, etc., might from the distance have been interpreted as a flame. As far as smoke or a burning bush, etc., I couldn't get anyone to say this time that they had that they had seen smoke or that anything was burning. Chavez insisted only on the fact that a greasewood bush appeared to be charred in spots, or rather seared, and that the searing was highly localized. Greasewood is n notoriously hard to ignite, and a match or ordinary flame held to it hardly affects it. Chavez said that the burns appeared as though intense, but localized flames had seared the grass and the bushes, but remarked that right next to a seared portion, he found portions quite untouched. Again, I don't know how much credence can be placed on all the burning bush, etc. I think we must go to other major points. The hoax hypothesis is, of course, one that suggests itself immediately. It is Quintilla and Mai's opinion that both Chavez and FBI agent Burns must have been in on the hoax if we adapt the hoax hypothesis. They testified that there were not tracks in the immediate neighborhood, and so that the hoaxers must themselves have arrived and left by balloon. Had it been a hoax, certainly some paraphernalia should have been left around if the pranksters beat a hasty retreat. These gentlemen said that nothing of that sort was found. The wind was blowing strongly from the south, yet the object was reported to have gone on directly west. This would hardly fit a balloon, unless, of course, the directions are wrong. I questioned and re-questioned the people on this point, and I couldn't shake them from that. Pranksters could have hidden themselves behind the knoll directly to the south, particularly had they lain prone. The dynamite shack is too small and too far away to have risked hiding behind it. Opal Grinder does have a high school student working for him, and I talked with him at length. Teenagers generally hate Zamora's guts, but it was added that they hate all fuzz and that if they wanted to get even with Zamora, they would simply beat him up or do something more direct, like letting the air out of his tires or something with immediate results rather than resort to an involved hoax. Opal Grinder, of course, would have to be in on the hoax. Also, he again told me the story of the tourist who said that he had sighted a strange object crossing directly in front of him on the road and landing in the gully, and towards which, an instant or so later, he saw a police car going. I checked out the time on that, and it fits. Opal Grinder's wife was just preparing to go to the bank before it closed at 6. Apparently, she takes the week's loot to the bank on Fridays, just before they close. The sighting, as you know, was supposedly at 5.45 p.m. Some of the high school students do have walkie-talkies, but the hoax hypothesis does involve Chavez, Opal Grinder, and FBI agent Burns. The reported tourists would have to be mythical. Zamora knew exactly where the dynamite shack was, because this is precisely why he left the road when he heard the noise. He thought there had been an explosion in the dynamite shack. The dynamite shack does not stand on legs, and I have inspected it closely and have taken photographs. The shack and the reported UFO must be considered distinct. Furthermore, I doubt very much whether a hoax could have been kept secret this long. If a hoax comes off well, perpetrators like to gloat about it, and there would have been no point about getting even with Zamora if they couldn't have gotten some kudos out of it. La Paz once told me of an instance in which some college students wanted to get even with a geology professor, so they planted a meteorite and contrived an explosion at some distant part of the state and had this poor professor running around ragged chasing a meteorite. 
The perpetrators, however, were caught and expelled from school because they simply couldn't keep their secret. They confided to friends who in turn confided to others, and there you are. But waving all that aside, the things that would seem to militate against a hoax are the fact that no tracks coming to or going from the region were found. Minutes after the sighting occurred, paraphernalia was not located. Again, within minutes, Chavez and the FBI agent would have would have to have been in on the hoax, and finally the object took off crosswind. Paraphernalia I refer to would have been ropes, launching equipment, gas tanks, etc., which would have been difficult to dispose of in a few minutes, and certainly without making any tracks. You say the whole thing could have been easily planned to come off as it did. I think otherwise. It would have been quite difficult to have a thing like this come off, even as to the original timing. Zamora did not have a regular patrol route, so his approximate whereabouts would not be known at a given time. I questioned Chavez on this, and Zamora patrols the whole town in an unscheduled fashion. By the way, there is no local UFO club. The fake UFO would have had to have been rather sizable since it looked to Zamora like an overturned car, upended, first off from a considerable distance. You suggest that when Zamora's car crested the hill, the hoaxers triggered another blast of flame and released the UFO and ran like hell. The terrain is such that when a car crests the hill, it suddenly comes upon the site. There simply would not have been time to wait until this happened to release the UFO and then hide not unless there were elaborate ropes and wires running over some distance on the ground. As long as Zamora wears his glasses, his eyesight is good, and you must remember that he did not lose the glasses until after he saw the flame and thought the object was about to explode. Your suggestion that we reenact the event is more difficult than you think. I have not yet discovered how to make a balloon go off crosswind or to wait to release it and cause an explosion until someone was just 100 feet away from me, and then disappear and hide, instantaneously. If the purported balloon release had been by means of delay mechanism, with the hoaxers having had time to hide, then the release mechanism, or some part of it, would have been left behind as telltale evidence. Zamora is having his troubles. The boys he picks up are rather direct. Zamora stopped a teenage speeder, and the kid fired back at Zamora. What are you giving me a ticket for? Don't you know a flying saucer might come down on you any minute? You may say that this strengthens the hoax hypothesis, but on the other hand, it is a perfectly natural remark for kids to make to a man held up for ridicule for having seen things. I come back also to the trenchant fact that Zamora was a thoroughly scared person. Chavez was remark has remarked this to me a number of times that never in his long association with Lonnie has he seen him in anything at all approaching the state he was in when Chavez joined him. I honestly don't think a small gas-filled balloon carrying a cardboard spaceship could have frightened a gruff, practical type like Zamora, who is used to accidents, bloodshed, fights, and even murders. We all seem to agree that Zamora saw something that really and truly frightened him. It seems much more likely to me that he saw a strange test craft, which is super secret. The flaws in this reasoning are that if it is so super secret, why would anyone be landing a half mile south of a town? Why also have we been unable to unearth from various agencies any classified clues as to such goings-on? Coming back to Socorro case, I'm sorry that I couldn't have been any more help. Both Quintilla and I find it impossible to dismiss as a hoax unless we have some evidence that there was a hoax. So again, folks, so you've got 
Manziel has basically claimed that this was a hoax, and these were Hynek's counterclaims. So again, so again, thorough, methodical, scientific, and balanced. These are the trademarks of J. Allen Hynek's style. The points given in the letter are well made, and any rumors of a hoax, even in letters between those of Nobel caliber, are subject to further proof which addresses those points, proof which has been distinctly and tellingly not forthcoming. Heineck further wrote, I think this case may be the Rosetta Stone. There's never been a stronger case with so unimpeachable a witness. Also noting his growing frustration with Blue Book, Heineck wrote, The Air Force doesn't know what science is. According to Stanford's reconstruction of the event from on-site interviews with Zamora, the time was probably no more than 20 seconds from when the object went to silent operation, rapidly accelerated towards the paralyte mill at the base of the nearby mountains, and then rose rapidly, a distance of about 2 miles, or 3.2 kilometers. Assuming constant acceleration, these numbers can be used to estimate the object's acceleration, average speed, and final speed. Assuming constant acceleration, the acceleration would be given by 2d over t2, where d is the distance of 2 miles, or about 3,200 meters, and t is the time of 20 seconds. The final speed would be 2d over t, and the average speed of d over 2. This works out to a final speed of 720 miles an hour, an average speed of 360 miles an hour, and an acceleration of 16 meters a second, or about 1.7 times Earth gravity of 9.8 meters a second. These high values rule out many conventional explanations, such as a helicopter or a balloon. A high-performance jet aircraft or rocket propulsion could conceivably produce the acceleration and near-supersonic speed, but neither forms of propulsion are silent. The Air Force report on the incident also said that they analyzed the soil and found no evidence of chemical propellants, as might be expected from a jet or most rocket engines. Further, no contemporary craft was capable of vertical takeoff and such high speeds. The oval object described by Zamora also lacked any wings or other external structures that might have provided lift. In 1966, the president of the Sapporo County's Chamber of Commerce, Paul Ridings, proposed developing the site of Zamora's claimed UFO encounter to make it more accessible to tourists. Consequently, stone walkways and steps were built in the arroyo from the mesa top, with a rock walkway circling the supposed landing site that included some wooden benches. However, these were built approximately a quarter mile away from the site of Zamora's alleged UFO sighting due to local rumors that the original site was contaminated by radioactivity. In 2012, Socorro City officials Ravi Baxter and Pat Salome commissioned local artist Erica Burley to paint a mural on a spillway facing Park Street to commemorate Zamora's alleged UFO sighting. The reason Lonnie Zamora's account changed as reflected in the Chieftain story and that of the journal can only be surmised. Both the Chieftain account and Captain Holder's report agree in all respects, and the latter journal story may be reflective of miscommunication. Dr. Hynek notes that Zamora was awkward in talking about it, or it may have been Zamora's attempt to play down the event, either out of frustration at the hullabaloo being made, or even at the request of Air Force investigators. The experience of Lonnie Zamora on April 24, 1964, stands as one of the most profound UFO events in the modern history of the phenomenon. 
To this day, it remains a case in which all the facts involved support the witness claims, and it is the kind of case that makes the UFO phenomenon such an enduring mystery. Lonnie Zamora saw a highly unusual device of unknown origin, what can only be described as a craft of some kind, and he reported seeing what he believes were occupants. Despite the controversy which often surrounds the subject of UFOs, the incident at Socorro remains a classic example of what the UFO phenomenon is, in fact, all about. So folks, what are we left with? This is a marathon of a case. I'll tell you, it's something else. What What's left when we get to the end of it? Was it a hoax? Was it a misidentified NASA project? Well, if either is the case, then it's been one hell of a cover-up over nearly 60 years. If it was NASA, what would they have to gain by never coming forward to this day? I can understand early on, but even in 2021? If it was a hoax, then almost inevitably, they would want to claim credit after some time, and time is running out as the Grim Reaper waits for no one. To this day, no compelling proof of any kind has been produced to prove the hoax explanation. It's only certain people saying they've talked to the hoaxers who want to remain anonymous, etc. There's never been any proof. If you go back and look at, for example, the famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster, even that's come out to be proven a hoax, and they've come out with letters and that showing that a surgeon basically faked it. But yet with this, there's nothing. It's just basically, I've talked to a shadowy figure who says he was in on the hoax. And again, why keep it a why keep it a secret after all these years? I can understand you not wanting to be exposed while you're in school, or maybe even shortly after, but these people are retired. Why wouldn't you just admit to it now? Contemporary New Mexico newspapers reported a low-pressure storm system moving through the state with wind gusts kicking up dust. Zamora likewise reported that winds were blowing hard out of the south-southwest, or maybe southwest, judging by the dust created as he drove up the dirt road to the scene. Hynek variously reported winds either out of the south or southwest. A recent review of historical wind data confirmed the large, low-pressure system at the time with winds at all surrounding weather stations out of the south and southwest. Since the object departed to the west-southwest, the winds would further rule out any passive flying object, such as a balloon, which would have to fly into the wind. And again, that's one of the major claims of the hoax, was that this was a balloon that these students sent up. Well, if it was a balloon, how was it flying into the wind? Now, UFO skeptic, or I would say debunker, Stuart Campbell, has suggested that what Zamora observed was almost certainly a mirage of the star Canopus. Well, at least our old amigo Venus didn't get the blame this time, folks. Can you picture my eye roll from here? I'll tell you, it's always got to be a star or a planet, even in broad daylight. Now, another one of our old friends, Philip J. Class, of course, he's got to make an appearance in this story. Yes, that same expert that accused the FBI of perpetrating a hoax in the form of extraterrestrial UFOs and referred to Hynek as a fraud. He's also been repeatedly accused of suppressing and distorting evidence, unscientific reasoning, attacks on an opponent's character rather than by answer to the contentions made, smear campaigns, scientific bait-and-switch tactics, and seemingly refusing to evaluate evidence that conflicts with his preconceptions. Yes, that class. He first suggested that the Zamora sighting was due to misidentified ball lightning. When this debunking was itself debunked, notably by atmospheric physicist Dr. James E. MacDonald, class switched gears. 
Class concluded that the incident was a hoax to put Socorro on the map, a collusion probably involving Zamora, the mayor, and a few others, and he made that accusation in 1968. Well, if that was the case, folks, Socorro has not been nearly as successful at milking UFO notoriety as another New Mexico town named Roswell, because now we're in 2021 and it's still not famous. Class, it should be noted, argued in favor of hoaxes more than almost any other UFO skeptic, but he rarely had any evidence to back up his accusations. Years later, Menzel argued that Zamora had misidentified a dust devil. Yep, double face palm on that one, folks. Again, oh, I see a dust devil, um, and I mistook it for a flame. Yeah, okay. April 24, 1964 has proven to be one of the most well-documented days in Socorro's history. Over the past 56 years, various ideas and thoughts have been shared regarding what Lonnie Zamora may have witnessed that day. But the one thing that remains true, regardless of any theories that may exist, is that the object witnessed by Zamora and others has not yet been identified. One of the long-held views of skeptics, and especially debunkers, was that Zamora was the sole witness and thusly was susceptible to either mistaking what he saw or to the purported hoax. That view, however, holds about as much water as a bucket full of holes. Several witnesses independently reported either an egg-shaped craft or a bluish flame at roughly the same time and in the same area, some of them within minutes of Lonnie's encounter. These witnesses did not know Zamora, and their reports occurred long before Zamora's story had begun to spread. The Air Force conducted an investigation and included that there had never been a strong case, had never been such a strong case with so unimpeachable a witness. Now, Stanford, who wrote a book about the encounter, and I believe it's Harry Stanford, but I mentioned it in the first episode, he wrote about a number of corroborating witnesses in his book, including two tourists named Paul Kais and Larry Kratzer, who were both approaching Socorro in their car from the southwest, less than a mile from the landing site. They apparently witnessed either the landing or takeoff and reported seeing the flame and brownish dust being kicked up. Their story was reported in the Dubuque, Iowa Telegraph Herald a few days later after their return home. According to Opal Grinder, the husband of the group of the five travelers he talked to told him, your aircraft sure fly low around here, and that the object almost took the roof off their car. The man thought it was in trouble since it came down west of the highway instead of at the nearby airport to the south. He saw the police car headed up the hill towards it. He thought to render assistance. According to Stanford, another witness called an Albuquerque television station around 5.30 p.m. to report an oval object at low altitude traveling south towards Socorro. This report was also brought up by KSRC Socorro radio newsman Walter Schrode when he interviewed Zamora on the radio the next day. Now that's that interview you would have heard in the first episode. Zamora said he hadn't heard of the report. Schrode thought this was likely the same object that Zamora encountered only 20 minutes later and helped corroborate his report. Several other stories appeared in New Mexico newspapers in succeeding days of other sightings of oval-shaped objects, including another landing case with burn soil near La Madera in northern New Mexico, also similar to the Socorro incident. The FBI report on the La Madera case further noted the witness reporting a blue-white flame associated with the object, four rectangular V-shaped landing marks, and several circular marks about four inches in diameter. 
Stanford also noted that there were a large number of oral witnesses to the object's loud roar during takeoff and landing. One member of the Socorro Sheriff's Office told him that hundreds of people on the south side of town had heard it. Stanford said he personally spoke to two women who heard the loud roar just before 6 p.m. They said that there were two distinct roars, maybe a minute or so apart, which again would corroborate what Lonnie said. In addition to those witnesses, Stanford said there were three other persons who called the police dispatcher immediately following the incident, before it was ever publicized, reporting a bright flame. In October of 2009, Stanford first publicly revealed that Sergeant Chavez, the first policeman to provide backup for Lonnie, had privately confided to fellow police officers that he too had seen the object rapidly departing to the west over the mountains as he approached the site. In various interviews, Zamora somewhat confirmed the possibility, saying Chavez was at the scene within about two minutes after he radioed him for backup. The object was still a couple of moments up there when he arrived, and if he, Chavez, had just paid attention, he would have seen it flying off towards the mountains. However, in public statements, Chavez maintained that he arrived too late to see the object. When Chavez first arrived at Zamora's position where the object had departed, he also noted the burnt bushes were still smoldering and Zamora appeared to be in a state of shock. In 1968, physicist and UFO researcher James E. MacDonald located Mary G. Mays, who asserted that she was a University of New Mexico doctoral student in radiation biology. She had been asked to analyze plant material from the Socorro site. Afterwards, she was told to turn in all records and samples and heard no more about it. When interviewed by MacDonald, Mays reported that she and two others had worked on studying physical evidence from the Socorro site, but she could not remember the names of the others. According to Mays, she had examined the site the day after the event and had gathered plant samples for analysis. Mays later determined that the plants, which had allegedly been burnt by the UFO's flames, were unusually completely dried out. Mays also found no evidence of radiation, but found two organic substances that she was unable to identify. Mays also reported to McDonald an area of apparently fused sand, where the sand had taken on a glassy appearance, near where the object had allegedly landed and then departed. The area of glassy sand was roughly triangular, measuring about 25 to 30 inches, or 760 millimeters at its widest, though it gradually tapered down to about one inch wide. It seemed about a quarter of an inch thick. Mays thought the glassy area looked as if a hot jet hit it. The event and its body of evidence is often referred to as one of the best documented, yet most perplexing UFO reports. It was immediately investigated by the U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, and the FBI, and received considerable coverage in the mass media. It was one of the cases that helped persuade astronomer J. Allen Hynek, one of the primary investigators for the Air Force, that some UFO reports represented an intriguing mystery. After extensive investigation, the Air Force's Project Blue Book was unable to come up with a conventional explanation and listed the case as unknown. The U.S. Air Force conclusion was thus. There is no doubt that Lonnie Zamora saw an object which left quite an impression on him. There is also no question about Zamora's reliability. He is a serious police officer, a pillar of his church, and a man well-versed in recognizing airborne vehicles in his area. He is puzzled by what he saw, and frankly, so are we. This is the best documented case on record, and still we have been unable, in spite of thorough investigation, to find the vehicle or other stimuli that scared Zamora to the point of panic. Zamora became so tired of the subject 
he eventually avoided both ufologists and the Air Force, taking a job managing a gasoline station. He passed away on November the 2nd of 2009, in Socorro from a heart attack. He was 76 years old. His was the story of a plain-spoken man who wandered unsuspecting into a moment unbidden and unwanted. But his was also the story of an unremarkable man who did that most remarkable of things. Having seen the incredible, he told his story plainly and without embellishment, and then left it to others to make of it what they may. In such courage does a kind of immortality take hold. Of such acts does a legend endure. So folks, that is the fascinating tale of the Socorro 1964 UFO sighting. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a marathon of an episode. There are, to this day, many people who claim that it's a hoax and it's all been solved, but I've struggled to find any real proof of it, as I say. Don't forget, next week's episode will be about Pennsylvania, some strange and mysterious things from there. And as always, I'll leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.